Hello and welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series especially for tourism operators and industry professionals. I'm Chris Griffin, I'll be your host for today's episode. Talking Tourism is an initiative of the Tourism Industry Council Tasmania, TICT, as you know, is the peak industry body for the tourism industry in the beautiful state that is Tasmania. If you're a regular listener to Talking Tourism, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener and enjoy today's episode, remember there are now over 100 episodes of Talking Tourism Conversations available from wherever you access your podcasts, or you can simply stream them on the TICT website at tict.com.au. We are recording this podcast today on the lands of the Palawara and Pakana, and TICT and I uh, offer our respects to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people, their elders, past and present, for their enduring care and management of these islands. Today's episode is also brought to you by our partner, Tourism Tribe. Tourism Tribe delivers the most up-to-date, highest quality, relevant advice and support for tourism operators to grow their confidence and digital business skills. Thanks to Tourism Tribe for their generous support of TICT and for helping to make this episode of Talking Tourism possible. Now, let's get into today's conversation with Dan Robinson-Jones, partner at Kantar Consulting. Dan is Kantar's culture, forecasting and futures lead for the APAC region. He has over 20 years expertise in the fields of insight, strategy, design, cultural change, trend analysis and forecasting, having worked with and for businesses across the Americas, Europe, Africa and APAC. That is impressive. As part of the global team that pioneered Kantar's global sustainability practice, he brings the advisory and consulting experience of helping numerous global brands and businesses turn aspirations in sustainability into clear strategy, practical action and commercial impact. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. So today, largely, Dan, we're going to be uh, racking your brains on all things sustainability. So can you start by telling us a bit more about Kantar's global sustainability practice and your involvement in pioneering it? Absolutely. So I think just for everyone's context, Kantar is the world's largest marketing advisory business. We specialise in insight and building strategy for clients, really across a whole range of different marketing issues. Everything from new market entry and market understanding through to brand positioning, portfolio and activation and innovation. Really where where the sustainability practice came from was understanding how markets were changing. And by markets, I mean not any specific category, but what was rare and desired in people's lives in countries around the world. Now, we could see this in lots of the syndicated annual surveys that we run in multiple markets where we operate, but also in the anecdotal feedback we were getting both from consumers when we spoke to them and from client businesses. What we were really seeing is a shift in what people wanted, what was rare and desired in their lives, the manifests in client businesses as demand and unmet demand. It was really evident before the advent of COVID. What we've seen during COVID is the acceleration of different aspirations, values, attitudes and behaviours for how people want to live. What that spoke to for us was the emergence of almost a new era of growth. We talk about it as being the era of the public, where what's rare and desired isn't a want for greater individuality, but optimism and hope about the future. The sustainability transformation practice was built in order to unlock the opportunities for clients where demand land markets, but also how they can meet that with relevant supply. So the practice is made up of six different individual components. 
There's one around where to play, which is understanding how your market has changed, building purpose, innovation, communication, employee value proposition, and monitoring performance, all benchmarked around people's increasing appetite to live differently and the role of sustainability within that. That kind of makes sense? That kind of makes sense. That's great. Now, just for um, some context, mm. you're um, working with Tourism Tasmania as their research. Yes. So, the Broader Cantar team here in Australia has a really long-standing relationship with Tourism Tasmania, um, where I entered the, the fray, as it were, and the conversations with the Tasmania, the TTAS team, really was toward the end of last year where they were looking to build on the previous success of the Come Down for Air campaigns and that platform, but to understand how that could find new relevance and really new differentiation in the context of a post-COVID world. Um, they knew and sensed that people's attitudes and aspirations had changed and they wanted to do something radical. So what we did was to really look at what is it people wanted from the time that they had? And the core idea behind it was that the idea of escape to a place where you are passively pampered, kind of the way tourism has traditionally generically spoken, was increasingly losing relevance. There was an opportunity to give people, start a different conversation of ending tourism as a passive pursuit and really making it something that people actively got more out of life rather than getting away from life, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Positive impact, no less. Absolutely. So talking about Tasmania, we have for a long time uh, tended to classify ourselves as the best place of sustainability, particularly in Australia. Uh, do you think that's still an accurate, accurate view? I think it absolutely is. I think it, it probably undersells Tasmania in all honesty. You know, when you think that Tasmania birthed the world's first sustainable political party, the world's first, first, first community advisory group on leading more sustainable lives and the world's first Department of the Environment in 1972, nine years before, seven years, sorry, before the world's first global conference on sustainability. We've been world leaders for a long period of time. And all of that history and heritage creates equity, and that equity has a real role today. I think the challenge that Tasmania and that everybody faces is how we think about sustainability in a way that can drive growth. Now, traditionally, we talk within the business about there being two types of sustainability today, type one and type two. The type one is the sustainability that we probably all know and think about when we hear the word, minimising our impact to maintain the way that we live. Uh, we would talk about it as kind of doing bad things more slowly, essentially. What we're seeing in and across markets, not just in Australia, but around the world, is an emergence of a second new type of sustainability that isn't about minimising, but is about positive impact and reimagining how we live, not minimising how we live, leaning into change to create a better, different future. And that type of sustainability covers everything from EV cars through to vodka that's made from sequestered carbon, issues of climate change and, and, and positive impact on the climate, but also positive impact through social sustainability. How do we create, in, how do we create a more inclusive, diverse future for everyone? How do we change the world rather than how do we save the world, if you like? Interesting. So thinking about Tassie against the rest of Australia in that context, what sets us apart? What's, what's going to be our superpower in this space? So I think, as I said, the, the history gives a great deal of equity. I think you are also, there's a real sense of differentiation in what Tasmania stands for in people's minds. We're not the kind of archetypal 
kind of picture postcard Australia. We're not beaches and desert. We are something very, very different. Differentiation is hugely important. It is the key driver of growth. So when I think about Tasmania, and I will put my hand up here and say, I'm not a regular visit to the Isle, but it plays to, I think, a greater sense of diversity, a greater sense of creativity, a greater sense of self-expression, there's a greater sense of innovation in the culture. And then there's a you know, 20% of your landmass is World Heritage Park. There's, there's unspoiled nature. So you've got two huge kind of irons in the fire that are points of differentiation to the rest of Australia, but also things that coincide really, really powerfully with the emerging discourse around sustainability and creating a better future. So just thinking about that, you know, the concept of sustainability has become more popular of the last three or four years. Apart from COVID, were there other factors driving that, do you think? Because it is a concept that's been around at least 20 years. So I remember carbon neutral flights were, were around about September 11th space. So this yes. isn't a new idea. I think what's really gained momentum in the last 10 years is a broader set of questioning how broader set of questioning how we live and the emergence of tensions in how we live. So people feel the world around them feels less safe, people feel more isolated, people feel their progress and their path through life is less clear than it was. Um, you know, I think there's there's the the average number of close friends that an Australian reported having halved between 2005 and 2015. So what you were seeing prior to COVID was a want to kind of free ourselves up from the ways that we had come to live, particularly in urban environments and urban lifestyles, fear of missing out, all that kind of stuff. People were looking, searching for something different. You saw it prior to COVID in the rise of yoga. Yoga became the biggest participation port in Australia. Uh, there were, I think, some in the region of 2 million Australians doing yoga on a weekly basis, which is twice as much, uh, twice the number of people regularly engaging in all three uh, classic Australian football codes combined. So people were already looking for something different. What COVID did, if you look at it through the lens of disruption rather than the pandemic itself, was what any disruption does to markets. It accelerates the emergence, the decline of old trends and the emergence of new trends. There's a brilliant stat uh, that we came across um, a little while ago from a survey taken in the last weekend of March in 2020. So when just after the airports were closed, the borders were closed, in the weekend where Sydney famously sold out of toilet paper and bread makers and interestingly bullets. It's an interesting insight into the psyche of Sydney. Um, <laughs> right. But the stat, the stat was this, that 62% of Australians thought COVID was the reset we needed to reevaluate how we are living. Mm. So, yeah. you know, even at that peak moment of panic, yeah. people felt there was something, they wanted to lean into change and they were looking for something different. Now, if you look at sustainability through the broadest lens, the way that the UN would talk about the 17 sustainable transformation goals, all of those things talk to the aspirations that people have to want to live differently. You're seeing it play out post in the Great Resignation, in the move from major cities. I think you've seen it play out really powerfully in the last election, you know, the rise of the teal independence very much driven by the promise of action on sustainability issues. It's hugely powerful. So people, I think, it's been there for a long time. The two things I think are imp that it's important to think about is that what sustainability actually means and what it encompasses has broadened significantly to cover a much bigger range of issues, all of which are focused on creating a different future and a better future. 
and the heat that people feel around those issues has only accelerated during COVID. The next question I've got for you is in that context, and this is about our opinion leadership as, as Tasmania, mm. do you see Tasmania as having a leadership role for Australia? And if so, mm. how can the tourism industry be a part of that? It's a great question. There is absolutely the ability, the, the history and the heritage and the equity of Tasmania as a brand, if you like, gives it absolute right to, to play that role. I think for me, the, the, the question in my head perhaps is what's the future that we are collectively working to create? That's a huge challenge, obviously, to get to. But that kind of building what works from a strategic point of view is building clarity on the future that you're working towards. I think Tasmania has the right to lead. For me, and this may be what I, this may be me, I don't know what the future that we're building towards is as an island, if that makes sense. Look, that's really refreshing to hear because normally when we hear from researchers, they're telling us about the trends we must react to and become responsive to, but this idea that perhaps Tasmania could actually be plotting um, I think, a different yeah, course. Yeah, it's... it's I think the, the biggest challenge that we find when we talk to clients around sustainability is trends because there are so many of them and they become they, it's very easy to get caught up. Trends historically tend to be used for executional purposes and actually you're seeing it's, it's bigger than that. You're seeing cultural forces shift. What people are looking for in that context, they're searching for different ways to live but they're looking for leadership in that. So whether that's, and they're expecting that from brands and from businesses increasingly, I think it's something like three quarters of Australians want brands to play a role in creating a yeah. better future and expect it of them increasingly. Mm. Um, the key to doing that is to be clear on the future you're going to create mm. and then being single-minded in how that's applied across all facets of business mm. rather than having a siloed team that are undertaking sustainable initiatives because that's what run that's where you run the risk of greenwashing. So I'm, I'm just wondering, I'm wondering whether you know we've we've started with Brand Tasmania's quiet pursuit of the extraordinary, but where's the pursuit taking us? Is probably the 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 second part of that question. We can identify being Tasmanian mm. through that aspiration. I think it's it's been one of the most galvanizing things we've seen in yes. terms of explaining Tasmanian. But yeah, where's it taking us? It's, it's interesting because it's, it's not a common thing that you see in the... It's unusual for consumers to be so receptive to messaging around the future that brands are going to create. Normally, it seems like... It, it seems like... It seems too ethereal. But kind of really clear mission statements. You look at the kind of stuff Patagonia classically does, mm. you know, to defend America's national parks. This is what we are going to do, a purpose. Mm. Or an end point. I think it's also hugely important internally for businesses. Everyone can work with a communications platform or a positioning for a couple of years. But the act of actually getting sustainability into businesses beyond campaigns, into your employee value proposition, into how you make decisions across the whole business function requires a really clear statement of what it is you are going to do by when, what's the future you're working towards. We found that when we've worked with we did a lot of work with, with businesses like AAA and like Hills Pet Food at a global level. And actually having that clear mission statement and where it fits into the broader business strategy means that you can make decisions because you know what's right or what to prioritise and what to do in the context of the future that you're trying to create. 
So for Hills, they knew whether they could make decisions around whether to invest time and energy and resources into transferring all of their distribution systems into EV trucks over investing in insect-based protein because it fitted with their mission with, statement. Yeah, yeah. It gives you clarity and it gives employees yeah. clarity. That's yeah. the other thing. You know, it gives employees clarity on where they can make a contribution. It builds, it helps with talent recruitment, talent retention, and talent remuneration. If you've got a really clear statement of what you're working towards and people can be part of it. Beautiful segue. Um, as clearly we are in the middle of working on the Tourism 2030 strategy <laughs> to do exactly that. Um, I'm, I'm going to cut to one question because I'm, I'm very curious about your viewpoint on this. Mm. Does sustainability come at the cost of profit or can the two coexist? The, I think the truth now is that the two cannot not coexist or have to coexist, to put it sim more simply. Businesses no longer need to decide to choose between doing well and doing good. Both of them now go hand in glove. We talk about this as being, I mentioned before, I think, the idea of there being a new era of growth, a new driver of growth, this idea of social utility rather than emotional and functional utility. What is it? What's the, what are you going to, what's the future you're going to create, essentially, or what's your social contract or purpose? That is increasingly expected. It drives salience of brands, it drives relevance of brands, it drives differentiation of brands over category competitors. Brands that have a clear social utility, businesses will grow 175% over the next decade. Those that don't will only grow 70%. The point being, if you don't have some kind of social utility, an approach towards sustainability that is integrated into your business and a clear vision that you're working towards, you will find growth harder and find it increasingly hard into the future. Mm. So to answer your question, um, the two have to go hand in hand. You don't have to choose one or the other anymore, yeah, yeah. and you almost Absolutely. can't. Yeah. How will you also talk about what growth is has to change also in terms of you know, that perpetual growth. Absolutely right. Isn't, isn't necessarily the, the future. I think there's, yes, I think there's, there's a different set of challenges, obviously, around that with, with boards and with stakeholders. What we're seeing now is brands that are clear on that social utility having larger market share and actually having much, much stronger commercial performance now and into the future. It also, I think it, it serves to make questions of innovation and questions of expansion more straightforward or less, less risk averse. If you understand what you're working towards, then you can work towards a coherent strategy rather than trying to go into new markets or trying to find new avenues of growth that work company out because you're working Instead, you're working culture in, so the next things yeah. where you can begin to monetize become more obvious. Does that make sense? Yes. No, good. I love that. All right, we're going to uh, move on to the big seven. All right, good. All right. Uh, so this is the standing order of everybody <laughs> on a podcast. Love seven it. No, key no, no. questions. Um, so uh, no wrong answers is the first rule. Excellent. So number one, your favourite spot in Tasmania and why? Can I quietly say something off the record here? It doesn't have to be off the record, but this is my first time to Tasmania. So, so it's uh, non-testing. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Good answer. <laughs> from, from, uh, from the conversations I've had and from, from the work we've done around, this is not obviously first-person visiting, but I think I would probably have to say Cradle Mountain. There's something about mountains. There aren't mm. that many mountains in Australia. I grew up as a climber loving mountains and loving being outdoors. So there's something about the wilderness and I, like, you know, I think there's loads of places you could pick, but there's something about just the, the shape and the majesty of it. 
that I would say that would be my favourite spot. Okay. So second question, favourite travel destination anywhere in the world? Again, I think the same thing is is mountains. As I said, I I grew up um, doing a lot of climbing. I think there's there's a Greek word, uh, um, which I think I'm going to pronounce wrong, but it's numinous, which is the the feeling you have when you are surrounded by things that are much bigger than you and a sense of place in the world. Mm. I think anywhere I go that I've been where you have that feeling, you know, the Swiss Alps would be an obvious example or uh, the Maritime Alps in the south of France, the Verdun Gorge, these massive kind of structures, yeah. ancient. Um, that's, that's kind of where I tend to head, I reckon. That's where if I could go back anywhere, it would be there. Got it. All right, this is going to be a tricky one uh, for you on your first trip to Tasmania, (laughs) but someone coming to Tasmania for the very first time in their lives asks you what's the one thing they absolutely must experience while they're here. What do you tell them? This is a tricky one for me. That's my first time here. I reckon I would say... The, there's the walking trail, isn't it? What's the, the, the five-day walking trail that Overland ends up? Track. Yeah. yeah. The, it's, I think the thing that, that I feel kind of inherently draws me here is that kind of, is that outdoorsness. Outdoors. Brilliant. So on that theme, you're walking the Avalanche Track for five days with three other people. Anyone in the world? Famous, not so famous, living or dead? Who and why? This one's much easier. Um, uh, the, the three people I would do this with would be... My father, who's passed away now, my two sons, who never got to meet him. My dad introduced me to the outdoors. I have my boys either share my love for it or have a very long suffering uh, in our trips. Uh, I think, you know, there's, there's something magical about being outdoors for days at a time mm. and being away from stuff kind of allows you to connect. And it would be, you know, the, the ability for my father, my two sons to meet my father would be magic. That's brilliant. Beautiful. Uh, so on that theme, you're road tripping around Tasmania. What are you listening to in the car? All right. We actually did a road trip. We took my boys back to Wales where my father was raised, uh, the little village, a couple of... We just got back uh, last Friday from a, a little stint in Europe. Uh, and while we were doing that road trip, we had quite a lot of Metallica. Uh, net, uh, Netflix and Stranger Things has a great deal to answer for. Uh, that, I don't think, would be my ideal road trip. I think when you're here... You kind of want the music in the background, right? So I would, I reckon it would be a soundtrack of some descriptions, like kind of uh, like an Enrico Morricone or a Lalo Schifrin or, or something of that era, like something like Dizzy Gillespie's uh, Live on the French Riviera. <laughs> it's a very specific <laughs> record, I know, but it's my happy tunes and I think... Good, okay. You put you in happy space. That's yeah, it. exactly. So you get to your destination, Tasmania. What's your favourite tipple of choice? What are you drinking? I'm pretty straightforward with, with, with drinks. I think I'd love to say it was some kind of refined whiskey, but give me a pale ale from a local brewery and I'm a happy Beautiful. man. Beautiful. Yeah, love that. And number seven question, um, and it's the big one, it's the uh, <laughs> statewide debate. No wrong answers. Yep. Uh, curried Tasmanian scallops. Cul- culinary delight or crime against humanity? This is a new, uh, a new possibility for me. I've not come across curry scallops, but I love scallops. Uh, curry is hands down my favourite cuisine in the world. Um, and I'm always up for something new, so I'm going to say a hesitant delight and then find somewhere uh, to try them tonight. Good. Well, best of luck with that. <laughs>
Cool. Ah, right. So that brings us to the end of our podcast with Dan from Cantar. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Talking Tourism. Remember to subscribe to hear more episodes as we release them every two weeks or so. Also remember to tell a friend or tourism colleague to check out our podcasts. Talking Tourism is an initiative of Tourism Industry Council and today's episode was brought to you with the support of our partner Tourism Tribe. A big thanks also to Caleb Miller from Mac40, our audio specialist who produces these episodes. I'm your host, Chris Griffin, and we'll catch up next time. Thank you.